Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and it's December 18th. The discovery of the Piltdown Man was announced at the Geological Society of London on this day in 1912. The word discovery should probably go in quotation marks because the Piltdown Man was a hoax or a fraud, depending on exactly what happened, which isn't totally clear. In February of 1912, Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, who was the keeper of geology at the British Museum, which is now called the Natural History Museum, he got a letter from his friend Charles Dawson. And in addition to being a solicitor, Dawson was an amateur archaeologist, and he told Woodward he had found something really exciting in some gravel beds in Piltdown, Sussex. He said that some workers had been digging in this pit and they had dug up something that they described as being kind of like a coconut along with some other fragments and they had thrown them away. Dawson had gone and retrieved all of this stuff and dug up some other things and had several pieces of skull and jawbone before writing this letter to Woodward. This set of remains looked kind of human, but not exactly. He compared it to another find that had been dug up in Germany five years or so before. So the two men, Dawson and Smith Woodward, went back to the pit. They did a lot more excavating before having that Geological Society of London meeting. And when they got to the meeting, they had an ape-like mandible or jawbone. Two of its molars were there and had significant wear on them. There were also the pieces of the brain case of a skull, which seemed a lot more human than the mandible part did. 
They also found some stone tools and fragments of other non-human mammal fossils. The coloring of all of this was very similar to what was in the gravel bed. Their conclusion was that these fossils were at least 500,000 years old. Everyone was really excited about this. People considered it to be a very major find, not just because it seemed to be evidence of a transitional fossil in the human family tree, but also because it meant that England was a very important place when it came to human evolution. A lot of papers were written about this find, basically a huge chunk of scientific literature. This chunk of literature was generally credulous and uncritical of the find itself. It wasn't really looking into whether the find was legitimate, but into what the find meant. There were some doubters, though, right from the start, but things didn't really start to fall apart for the Piltdown Man for about 10 years. First, in 1926, it was discovered that those gravel beds where the fossils had been found were not nearly old enough to have 500,000-year-old fossils in them. Then people started finding fossils in other parts of the world that showed a very different track of human evolution. And then, in the 1940s, people started to develop isotopic testing, and that quickly proved that these bones were nowhere near 500,000 years old. It was more like maybe 50,000 years old at most, and that was from the very earliest generation of these sorts of tests. Those tests got better, and when they got better, the findings got more precise, and when the findings got more precise, the bones were even newer, more like about 600 years old. Not anywhere in the vicinity of 500,000 at all. Further analysis showed that this jawbone was not from a human ancestor, it was from a young orangutan. And all these various pieces had been meticulously altered to look like they were genuine. They had been stained to match the material in the gravel beds. The molars had been artificially worn down. And the other mammal fossils that had been found, they were genuine, but they weren't actually mammals that lived in that area. It became clear that someone had done this on purpose, and a lot of people were extremely embarrassed and very worried about what this said about the state of science and what damage it might have done to people's understanding of science. So we know a lot more today about exactly how these hoax remains were doctored to look real, but there are still some doubts about exactly who the hoaxer was. It's generally pinned on Charles Dawson with the idea that he was trying to bolster his own career, but it's possible that he might have been the dupe of some other person's deception. You can learn more about this in the December 16th, 2016 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on the show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a very famous Christmas story. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. 
From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Hey, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast that proves history is always happening. The day was December 18, 1892. The ballet The Nutcracker premiered at the Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg, Russia. The ballet has since been performed many times around the world, and Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky's score is one of his most famous compositions. Prussian author E.T.A. Hoffman wrote the story The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, which was first published in 1816. In the story, a seven-year-old girl named Marie Stahlbaum gets a Nutcracker doll for Christmas. When she falls asleep after getting her presents on the night of Christmas Eve, the Nutcracker leads her dolls in battle against the Mouse King. In the end, Marie breaks a curse that was on the Nutcracker, and he comes alive and takes Marie to the doll kingdom, where she marries him and becomes queen. French author Alexandre Dumas adapted the story in 1844. In 1891, Ivan Sevolovsky, the director of Moscow's Imperial Theaters, commissioned Russian composer Tchaikovsky to compose a ballet and an opera. The opera he composed was Iolanta, a lyric opera in one act. It was his 11th opera and the last one he completed, and the ballet was The Nutcracker, his last ballet. Tchaikovsky was not too happy with using the story of The Nutcracker as the subject of a ballet, but by March, he had composed some of the scenes. Tchaikovsky was a fan of the celesta, a keyboard instrument, and he decided to use it in the symphonic ballad The Voyevoda, as well as The Nutcracker. The Celesta is famously featured in the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy in Act Two of the ballet. Selections were first performed as an orchestral suite in March of 1892. Pyotr Jurgensen published the full score of the ballet and the piano arrangements by Sergei Tonyevev that same year. Ivan Sevolovsky and Marius Petipa based the libretto or the text of the ballet on Dumas' version of The Nutcracker. The ballet premiered along with Iolanta at the Imperial Marinsky Theater on December 18, 1892. Ricardo Drigo was the conductor and Lev Ivanov produced the ballet. Some of the principal performers were Stanislava Belinska as Klada, Sergei Lagat as the Nutcracker Prince, and Timofey Stikolkin as Drosselmeyer. Previously, Tchaikovsky and Petipa worked on The Sleeping Beauty together, and it was a success. So the Nutcracker opened to a full house. 
But the ballet got poor reactions. Tchaikovsky wrote that it was staged well, but the audience did not like it and was bored. Critics thought the choreography and libretto were lackluster. And years later, the turbulence and danger caused by the Russian Revolution of 1905 led dancers in the Marinsky Theater to flee Russia. Though the original production of the ballet was unsuccessful, Tchaikovsky compiled a suite of eight numbers from the ballet for concert performance that was successful. As performances of The Nutcracker began to be staged throughout the West, the ballet itself grew more popular. It spread to Hungary, England, the U.S., and other places in Europe and North America. Many movies have since used The Nutcracker's music, including Disney's 1940 film Fantasia. And more people have seen The Nutcracker than any other ballet. It's a Christmas time favorite for many ballet companies around the world, and plenty of productions have made the libretto and choreography their own. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Spend some of your daily social media time with us at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. And if you would like to write me a letter, you can scan it, turn it into a PDF, and send it to us via email at thisday@iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day. And regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that dares to touch history without the aid of a 39 and a half foot pole. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about the time when the Grinch tried to stop Christmas from coming and forever linked himself with the holiday in the process. The day was December 18th, 1966. Dr. Seuss' How the Grinch Stole Christmas aired for the very first time on CBS. The special, directed by Chuck Jones and Ben Washam, 
is fondly remembered for its expressive animation and clever songwriting, as well as for its message of kindness over commercialism. It tells the story of a grumpy, mountain-dwelling hermit known simply as the Grinch. Annoyed by his Christmas-loving neighbors in the town below, the Grinch decides to ruin their holiday so that he can mope around in peace. His plan is nearly thwarted along the way by a surprise encounter with the adorable Cindy Lou Who, but the Grinch recovers and manages to steal all the trappings of Christmas. However, the Grinch later has a change of heart, or more precisely, a growth of heart, when he sees proof that the holiday wasn't as hollow as it had looked from a distance. Softened by this realization, he returns all the stolen goods and joins the residents of Whoville for a grand holiday feast. The How the Grinch Stole Christmas TV special was based on the 1957 story of the same name by Theodore Ted Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. In an interview with Red Book magazine upon the book's release, the author revealed that the character of the Grinch was actually based on himself. As he explained, quote, I was brushing my teeth on the morning of the 26th of last December when I noted a very Grinchish countenance in the mirror. It was Seuss. Something had gone wrong with Christmas, I realized, or more likely, with me. So I wrote the story about my sour friend, the Grinch, to see if I could rediscover something about Christmas that obviously I'd lost. It took the author just a few weeks to sort out the problem and the story, with Geisel later describing it as the easiest book to write of his whole career. How the Grinch Stole Christmas was well-received upon release, and the book continues to be a top seller over 60 years later, but it was the TV special in the 1960s that gave the story a wider audience and made the Grinch a true icon of Christmas, right up there with Frosty and Rudolph. NBC had launched the trend of animated holiday specials when they aired Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962. The network followed it two years later with the stop-motion classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and that's when things really started to heat up. In 1965, CBS jumped on the holiday special bandwagon with a Charlie Brown Christmas, and a year later, it was the Grinch's turn. The project began not with the MGM studio or the CBS network, but with legendary cartoon animator and director Chuck Jones. He felt the Grinch's story was perfectly suited for its own animated special, a project he took on while under contract with MGM. Jones had actually worked with Ted Geisel years earlier, during World War II. Geisel had served as commander of the animation department for the Army's first motion picture unit. In that role, he worked closely with Jones, who was still under contract at Warner Brothers, on a humorous instructional cartoon series called Private Snafu. The black and white shorts featured the bumbling title character trying, and often failing, to demonstrate the do's and don'ts of Army safety and security protocol. The shorts were originally classified for military personnel only, 
but they've since been released to the public and are definitely worth a look for fans of either artist. It was because of this prior working relationship that Geisel ultimately agreed to Grant Jones the rights to make an animated Grinch special for television. The author had been burned by adaptations of his work before, including one production that had left his name out of the credits. The experiences had soured his view of Hollywood and made him reluctant to part with the screen rights for his books. But in the end, Geisel couldn't refuse a personal request from an old collaborator, and with Jones at the helm, he knew his story would be in good hands. However, getting Geisel on board was only half the battle for Jones. He still needed to convince CBS to air the special, and to do that, he would first have to find a sponsor to cover the production costs. At the time, television specials weren't funded by studios and production companies like they are today. Instead, the projects were paid for by company sponsors, like when Coca-Cola sponsored the Peanuts Christmas special. Jones made storyboards to show his intentions for the special and pitched them to over two dozen companies, none of whom were willing to pony up the cash. Finally, at the 11th hour, Jones found a sponsor in, of all things, the Foundation for Commercial Banks. The director later remarked on the irony of the endorsement, saying, quote, I thought that was very odd, because one of the great lines in there is that the Grinch says, perhaps Christmas doesn't come from a store. I never thought of a banker endorsing that kind of a line, but they overlooked it, so we went ahead and made the picture. It was no small investment, either. All told, the 26-minute special cost more than $300,000 to make, which would be nearly $2.5 million today. For reference, A Charlie Brown Christmas had a budget of about $96,000. Spending three times that amount on a special of the same length was unprecedented, but the money was put to good use. The substantial budget allowed for more detailed animation and higher production values than other TV cartoons of the era. Apologies to Peanuts. The extra money came in handy, because Jones and his fellow animators had to fill in a lot of missing details when adapting The Grinch for television. The original book had been illustrated with simple line drawings and a limited color palette, consisting mostly of black and white, with occasional splashes of light pink and red. Jones knew the two-tone style wouldn't fly for a TV special, so one of the first changes he made was to color the Grinch green. He reportedly chose the now-iconic shade because all of his rental cars in Washington State had been the same ugly green color. Geisel approved of the change, but when Jones first showed him the new design, the author exclaimed, that doesn't look like the Grinch, that looks like you. Jones, who had often used his own gestures and expressions as models for his characters, replied, well, it happens. Aside from fleshing out the illustrated world of the story, Chuck Jones also had to supply new story details in order to fill out the 26-minute runtime. The entire text of the book was incorporated in the special, with a few minor tweaks here and there, but it only takes about 12 minutes to read the whole book out loud. Jones came up with a few solutions for extending the story. 
The first was to beef up the role of Max, the Grinch's long-suffering dog and only companion. Jones viewed Max as the stand-in for the audience, a disapproving observer who was powerless to stop the Grinch's scheme, but hoped it would fail all the same. The other additions to the story were three songs featuring lyrics penned by Dr. Seuss himself. One of those songs, titled Welcome Christmas, was written in what Jones referred to as Seussian Latin. This was an attempt to write a new secular carol that mimicked the sounds of a classical religious carol, such as Adeste Fidelis, or as it's known in English, O Come All Ye Faithful. Jones didn't think it mattered that their carol was composed of nonsense words because, as he put it, quote, Fahu fores dahu dores seems to have as much authenticity as adeste fidelis to those unauthored in Latin. The director was later proven right on the matter because, after the special aired, numerous viewers wrote to CBS requesting translations of the quote-unquote Latin lyrics. Another of the special's original songs is Trim Up the Tree with Christmas Stuff, a jaunty square dance-style number written by German composer Albert Haig. It's a delightful tongue-twisting ode to the excesses of Christmas celebration, and probably the only song ever written that encourages the listener to, quote, hang dang donglers on the bathtub and trim the occupant with floof. There's not a bad track in the special, but the standout is, of course, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. While the other two songs were sung by an uncredited chorus representing the Who's of Whoville, You're a Mean One was sung by Thurl Ravenscroft. You may not know the name, but you certainly know his booming voice, which he lent to the Frosted Flakes mascot Tony the Tiger for more than 50 years. Thurl was also a frequent voiceover artist for many classic attractions at Disneyland, including the Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, and my personal favorite, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. Thurl didn't receive an on-screen credit for singing You're a Mean One, and as a result, most viewers mistakenly thought it was sung by the special's narrator, Boris Karloff. Geisel, who had gone through the experience of not getting a credit, tried to correct the oversight. He encouraged columnists to credit Thurl in their publications, but going off of the continued misattribution, I'm guessing the effort to get the word out wasn't very effective. It likely didn't help that many critics of the time gave the special a lukewarm review. For instance, one critic could only muster enough enthusiasm to say it was, quote, probably as good as most of the other holiday cartoons. I can't see why anybody would dislike it. Others said the special's themes were too on the nose, and that a lot of the magic had been lost in the story's translation from page to screen. The New York Times was especially protective of the sacred Seussian text, calling it, quote, a creation that should be left undisturbed on the printed page. In the end, it didn't really matter what the critics thought. The special's premiere was watched by 38 million viewers and has since gone on to become required holiday viewing for millions of families worldwide. 
The Grinch proved so popular that CBS eventually commissioned two more specials featuring the character. The first, a prequel called Halloween is Grinch Night, premiered in 1977, and the second, a crossover called The Grinch Grinches the Cat in the Hat, in 1982. Both specials went on to win Emmy Awards, but neither became a perennial classic like the original. The Grinch may have failed to steal Christmas, but he succeeded in stealing the public's heart, something he seems destined to hold on to for years and years to come. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also write to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I'd love to know what kind of Christmas stuff you trim up your tree with. I'm partial to Wifferbloofs myself, but I'd never say no to a good Pantuka. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.